my name is Keith Beavers and oh hey dude hey Keith I'm Adam Teeter the co-founder of Vine Bear I know you are but what are you doing here I actually don't know what I'm doing here I think to help you well since you're here I mean it's a little bit annoying but this is my podcast I know <laughs> but you know if you want to hang out I do have a couple questions if you're totally cool with that yeah sure thanks for your time Adam Teeter CEO of Vine Pear. you're welcome Keith What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to season two, episode three of Vine Pairs Wine 101 podcast. It's a lot to say. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tastings director of Vine Pair, not the CEO. What's going on? Today we're talking about red blends, and I got to say it's a history thing happening right now. So I had to bring somebody in to help me understand what this new movement is, so how we can move into the future with it as an American drinking culture. I brought in the CEO. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Apothic Wine. From rich red blends to an alluring white and a rosé with dark secrets, Apothic makes wine that is anything but ordinary. Ignite your curiosity with Apothic Red, the intriguing red blend that launched the Apothic legacy. And yeah, there's a sly, roguish wink to every one of our bottles because we think a good wine, like a good time, should mix things up a little bit. I mean, bold knights call for rebellious wine. Apothic wine. There's mischief in the making. So, the term red blend is pretty self-explanatory, right? But the thing is, it's, it's evolving. That term is evolving into a new category of wine here in the American drinking culture. And it's happening, like, right now. In, in real time. So, for me as a history buff... I was like, where do I start? How do I start researching something that's actually happening right now? So, thing is, we've been talking about this at Vine Pair for a while, for a few years now, this idea of the red blend. We've been watching this thing evolve. So I decided to have a recorded conversation with CEO of Vine Pair, Adam Teeter, because he's he's got it down. And I just wanted to pick his brain about it. And so the two of us kind of Riffed back and forth, and I think we figured out what's going on. Actually, I know we figured out what's going on. Actually, Adam told me what was going on, and then I figured out what was going on. So, I know this is a little bit different, but this is really good information, because right now, this is happening. And as we move into the future, this could be a good timestamp. Like, this is when it really started to take off. Because for the last few years, the Nielsen ratings have finally been tracking this idea of the red blend. So, we're just in the beginnings of it. So... Sit back, relax, hang out. Me and Adam C- Adam Teeter, CEO, just have a convo about the new phenomenon of red blends. Adam, thank you for coming on my podcast. You're welcome, Keith. It's, it's always great to be here. Well, it's my first time, actually. <laughs> Long-time listener, first-time guest. <laughs> do, you, do you listen to the podcast? Yeah, I do, man, every week. All right, fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I brought you on here because... I love this idea of the American red blend. I just need to understand what, what we do about it and how, where did it come from? How do, what do we do? I guess if you think about it, and I'm going to say this is going to sound really wine pretentious, but when I think of red blends, there's a, most of the wines from antiquity until now and around the world that we drink are blends from Chianti, mm-hmm. Bordeaux, Champagne. These are all blends but we have this term that we're using to define something. And I need to understand 
what's up. Can you riff for a second on what you know about what's going on? Yes, I think that's what is so interesting about this is that for people who are, you know, traditionally, you know, learned in the world of wine, uh, let's say, you know, your W sets, your your self-taught people like yourself, uh, those that follow, um, you know, as you as you refer to her as you know Jedi Master uh, Jancis Robinson, right? We we know of of wine as you know lots of wines being blends, right? So if you say, oh, I'm really into red blends, you could mean you're into Southern Rhone wine. You could right. you could say you love Bordeaux. Uh, you know, you could, as you said, be you know be really into lots of different styles, Chianti, etc. Um. But what happened in the U.S. is about, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you had this emergence of red wines on the market that in place of the label saying Merlot or the label saying, uh, you know, Cabernet or Pinot Noir just said red blend. And because we don't name wines after places here. Right. We don't have our own version of Napa, let's say, right? If you right, just if you see cool. a wine on the you know on the shelf and it just said Napa on it, you have no idea what it was. Yeah, right. Yeah. We don't do that. Uh it was a way for American wine producers to market a new style of wine that was was basically an old style, right? They were doing the same thing that winemakers in Chianti had done. They just were actually sell, telling you it was a blend because they couldn't say that their wine was called you know, Paso did that for you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, basically this idea of, of red blend really took off. Um, And now red blend is looked at by a very large portion of American consumers to be the same thing as asking for a Merlot or asking for Cabernet, not, not, not trade off, right? You're not going to drink a a Merlot or a red blend. But what I mean by that is like when you order a red blend, you expect to receive a wine at your table or at the store that says red blend on the label. And I think that that's, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, right? It's because we are talking about a new category of wine. Um, and a category of wine that is treated the same as if a consumer were to say they like to drink Zinfandel, right? And actually, that's what's really interesting is that Red Blend is in a lot of ways the creation of the demise of Zinfandel. The creation of the demise of Zinfandel? Yeah, it, demise out of, Zinfandel? Out of demise? the ashes of Zinfandel came oh, the Red oh, it's Blend. Phoenix rise. Right, because isn't, isn't it true that most of these red wine, red blends are based off either Zinfandel or maybe Petite Syrah or something like that? It used to be. uh, But again, this is why it is crazy, right? So if we were in a, you know, if we were in France or Italy and we were in one of these AOCs, DOCs, et cetera, and we had written laws that said in order to make, we're going to, we're going to name our category of wine, the red blend. We're going to name it Keith's Paso blend or whatever, like Keith. Right. Okay. If we were to say that, we would say, okay, well, this this came about. Well, let's see, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, uh, ten years in, it became really popular. And when it was popular, 
the grapes used to make this specific kind of wine were Zinfandel, of which 65% was used, Petit Sirah, which the majority of winemakers were making like 20%. Uh, then there was, you know, so people were using a little bit of Merlot, whatever, you could use anything else you wanted. But that was, those were the main. And then we would sit down and we would have a meeting right mm-hmm. amongst all the people who who voted in the AOC and we'd write the guidelines and we'd vote on those guidelines and we'd ratify them much like we try right. to ratify the tax code right Forever. so and we'd say these right. are the laws but because as you like to say all the time this is america we didn't do <laughs> that right? right and so the red blend has become basically any blend of red grapes <laughs> that creates a red wine for the most part which okay. is crazy but the way that the red blend came about was, as you said, as a way for a lot of winemakers to use Zinfandel and Petit Syrah, primarily Zinfandel, that had gone out of fashion. Okay. So basically in California, right, there was so much Zinfandel. I mean, I remember when I even like came of drinking age – uh, which was, you know, only 14, 15 years ago. That's uh, all. You know, that's all. It's a long time ago, though, right? There was, even then, there was still a lot of Zinfandel. I used to see it all over the yeah. place, you know. And when I was in college and drinking underage, it was definitely mm-hmm. even everywhere. You know, you'd, you'd walk into Publix and Kroger and like there'd be all these, you know, Seven Deadly Zins and yep. uh, Ravenswood, all these, you know, tons of Zinfandels all over the shelf. And they started to dwindle because Zinfandel became less popular. Now, you've talked about this before, um, but ripping up vines and replanting is very expensive. Right. And so all of a sudden, there was a lot of these grapes just on the market that nobody wanted, or they didn't want them for the price that people were originally paying for them, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of really smart winemakers were like, well, these are still this is still really high-quality fruit. This wasn't like this was fruit that was garbage, Right. right. This was really good fruit that made really good wine. Just the problem was that American tastes had changed. People didn't want Zinfandel anymore. It wasn't seen as like the wine you always order with steak. You know, the, you know, big bad boy Cabernet Sauvignon like was like, no, man, like you're not you're not, you're not taking my spot. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not taking my spot, you know. And so basically it it just wasn't something that people were ordering as much. Right. And so these winemakers said, huh, you know, how can I? what can I do with this really high quality fruit? And one of the winemakers who, you know, was, was trying to figure this out was a guy named Dave Finney. Um, and Dave Finney was from Napa is from Napa. Yeah. You know, Dave, he is from Napa. Um, and he had access to all this fruit that other people didn't want because they were, you know, they were going after Cabernet and Merlot, but there was a lot of Napa. And then I think also, if I'm correct, also the surrounding area, Sonoma, et cetera. Um, a lot of, you know, Zinfandel that was mm-hmm. there that was really good. It was being grown in the same vineyards. And he said, huh, I'll take all of that and I'll make a blend with it. Zinfandel will be the base and I will call it the prisoner. Okay. And the prisoner, the big old bottle that everybody buys. Yep. And so basically he creates this bottle. It becomes this sort of like cult wine. Right. And at the same time, you had other winemakers making other wines like Apothic, mm-hmm. another really big red blend. I mean, big in terms of popularity um, and all kind of doing the same thing. Like they saw that they had access to these 
grapes. And so then, you know, when people asked people like someone like Dave, like, what is the prisoner? Um, he didn't really, he wasn't going to call it a Zinfandel, right? Because Zinfandel was out of fashion. So he's like, oh, it's a red right. one, right? Yeah. And so that kind of be, that's kind of the origin story. I mean, the, the, look, the wine that's really famous for making red blends, what they are actually isn't the prisoner. It is apothic. Like you can look at just what happened with that wine and how it just exploded on the American market and just became this massive, uh, you know, this massive phenomenon. I remember um, buying it from my wine shop in 2009 when it came out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, it's really helped define what the red blend is, but but now it's really it's expanded past that, right? And now the red blend, you know, grew and grew and grew, and I think people, American consumers, are saying, "Huh, I like this." And so, what is what is the flavor profile of the red blend? That's what's interesting, because because it's not now based on any specific. Grape, there's no laws like we talked about. It's hard to say, well, with all red blends, you will get X, Y, or Z in the same way that you could probably say to me, well, when you have Chianti and it's from this commune, you should expect to have this. Or when right. you have Bordeaux from the right bank, you should look for, you know, wines that are a little bit more, uh, that are softer and more supple, maybe, you know, drinkable at an earlier stage because they're more, uh, they're heavily based on Merlot, but on the left bank. You're going to get wines that, you know, you probably need to lay down for a while because they're more based on Cabernet and things like that. Like you're not going to get that with a red blend because every right. blend can be different. And so then – so here I guess flash forward to another interesting part of the story with, uh, you know, red blends is, you know, I don't know if this is responsible or not um, for the – also why red blends just kind of became, uh, you know, any kind of blend of wines. But, you know, there there did come a time when – you know, Mr. Finney had a very successful product and he sold it to another winery. Um, and in selling that wine, he was not allowed to make a, a blend of wine, a red blend of wine based on Zinfandel for, I think it was seven years or something or eight years, or he has a wow. wine. I think he has a wine called seven years in the desert or eight years in the desert. Now that, that's, um, I feel bad that I actually don't know the actual name. Uh, so we might have to look that up. You can correct me. Uh, but yeah, and I, that, that now is sold through his label, Orrin Swift. Um, but it's the first Zinfandel-based red blend he was allowed to make after selling The Prisoner. Um, and wow. so he made other red blends, right, that maybe were based on, like you said, Petite Syrah. Maybe he found some, you know, Malbec in, in California that no, that people weren't yeah. using as much or some Syrah or things like that. And it kind of just became this idea of red blends as these usually bigger Mm -hmm. powerful luscious luscious wines. is the big key there right luscious so is the powerful, but luscious luscious is the word i mean that's what i choose to use when i talk about red blends it's they are it's luscious they Everyone are that i've listened to or like tasted and reviewed <sighs> it's about lush plush fruit it can be a big wine with a ton of alcohol or it could be even a medium-bodied wine with like lesser alcohol or the perceptions of, of, of either or, but yep. it's always plush and yes. smooth. Yes. So I don't know. Are we, so this is something, okay, so this is my theory because I, again, like I dig history and I love, and I love watching how we evolve as a, as a, as a drinking culture in the United States, cause we're so young and we had 10 years of pro prohibition to kind of mess around with our, with our sort of like drinking culture. And then when we came out of prohibition, you know, we had to rebuild everything. And the first thing we re we rebuilt instead of just like everyday wine, we built a fine wine region in Napa Valley and made it so that it was a fine wine region. 
yeah. then there was all these AVAs across America and all this stuff. So we were, you know, then Robert Parker comes around with the point system. And like now everyone's learning how to drink fine wine yep. in America, but there's never really been an everyday wine. What you have in Europe, you have every, every DOC, like you said, even though they have like these, these hard and fast rules that last for, for decades and decades, there's always some sort of fun, easy drinking wine that the, the, the region will make, whether it's, whether it's Hoven in, 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 in Rioja. Yep. Or it's uh, you know Rosso di Montalcino in 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 Montalcino, or something like that. So it seems to me that because we are who we are and how we how we've come up in in drinking culture, especially in wine, is we we came out of the prohibition area with a big sweet tooth because all the wine that was being poured during prohibition was kind of a sweet red wine. And when we we started to actually learn about what fine wine was, we missed that one thing. We missed that everyday wine thing, the stuff that stuff that helps a culture build as mm -hmm. a drinking culture. And you know, you don't just like build as a drinking culture, like, okay, we drink fine wine now, it's all we do. So this seems to me a great moment in our history of wine is that we have now created this thing. We call it the, the American or the red wine red blend. Yeah, the red but just the red blend. Is, just the red blend and blend and what it is is it's it's like hey every year the, the blend is going to be different because we are really because I, I talked to the uh to uh, deb jorgensen she's the winemaker at apothic and even you know that wine is always smooth always chill always plush always deep but she changes the blend every year based on what they get so it's like this it's like this it's like it's our version even though they can get like i don't know what the prisoner i don't know how much how much that bottle costs nowadays but you know in our range of what's available what we're willing to pay for for an everyday wine the red blend is now there for us to have that everyday drink instead of freaking out stressing out every night about buying something that's fine wine yeah. for dinner does that make sense? Yeah, man. So here's what I think is interesting. So first, when you're talking, I, of course, looked it up. Uh, so it depends on where you buy it. But for most most places, the prisoner is $55 a bottle. Um, that's, that's, not, that's not inexpensive. No, it's I mean, it's it's it. But I think for a lot for what what Red Blends is really interesting is whether it's Apothic, um, which is, you know, a more everyday red blend that's more affordable or it's, you know, some of the other, you know, really amazing red blends that Orin Swift makes, uh, you know, that mm -hmm. obviously so Finney when he left with the prisoner he started orange swift um and orange swift is you know he makes a lot of a lot of red blends uh for a lot of people it hits everything they're looking for you know it has that power it has the the plushness and i think what's interesting about red blends that i hadn't thought about until you were talking and uh, i think it's really interesting because we like to geek out on this kind of stuff is you know we always talk about like malbec is the like the wine that became popular without the help of the wine industry, if that makes sense, right? It wasn't a wine yeah. that was really, the red blend actually is that truly that wine, right? Like we've, we sat here being like, as, as you know, wine writers and journalists and whatever you and I've been like, oh, it's, it's Malbec. But actually Malbec in a lot of ways was very traditional in the way that it still came out. I mean, yeah, fine. In America, maybe it, it, it became popular through the people and through wine shops, but you know, in in Argentina and things like that, it like it was still you know it was very highly touted by sommeliers and and stuff. In well, they, they drink most of it. They didn't give us of it. They, initially, they drank all of it there exactly until like the nineties. But in the U.S., like the red blend is one hundred percent a wine that was became popular because of consumers, right? It's right. like it is the people's wine. It is the best mm -hmm. way to describe it, right? It is this. Cool. 
it's, it's very American. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's this phenomenon. And I think it's like really cool because like you can't define it. Right. As you're saying, like, I, I didn't know that about Apothic. That's crazy. You know, like that every, every year the blend is different. I mean, that is very much, you know, I'm going to use the best things that are available to me to make the best wine I can, as opposed to have to use, you know, this grape or that grape. That's what's so interesting about the blend. And the reason that I caught you and said, you can't say American red blend anymore is that that used to right. be true, but right. now you are seeing, you know, entrepreneurial winemakers around the world who are saying, right. huh, there's something here. Especially Argentina. Yes. And they are now, and, and also I've, I've seen it now in Australia too. They are mm-hmm. now making, yeah, mostly of course, new, new world wine regions. Can we say, right. can we yeah, say, yeah. I don't think we, can we say that term anymore? But um, <laughs> I think so. But uh, it's a little bit. Yeah. But so um, we are, yeah, we're seeing now red blends coming out of Argentina. We're seeing red blends coming out of Australia. And it's all the same idea, and it all is kind of that same profile we're talking about, lush, plush. And the word that consumers use that that the trade doesn't, smooth. Smooth. And I think smooth is the most interesting word to me. I'm like, you could have a whole podcast about what smooth is. I know. Um, I know. But smooth is like this word that every time, you know, when you and I first started, you know, really, you know, digging on wine, go into like the wine – festivals and teaching and stuff there together right. remember that's the one word i we used to hear every single consumer say to us is, oh i love this one it's so smooth right, right and if you were ever to talk to like you know a w set trained or a, or a, or they don't really know what it means because they don't use it yeah, it's rejected because, I say. It's right rejected. They, they weren't taught that you know they, they didn't come into wine using the term and it's one of these things that is such this like disconnect because I think because wine professionals don't know what that term means to most consumers, they don't know how to fulfill what that consumer is looking for. And mm-hmm. basically what that consumer is looking for is what you said. It, to me, it's like this. It, it is smooth is the red blend. It is like this wine that is luscious and plush and ripe and very low in tannin with a mm-hmm. nice amount of acidity that is not super high acidity, right? But that has acidity. So it's not a flat, flabby wine, but right. it is a wine that is very easy drinking, even and at it its high alcohol. It can go with burgers, content. pizza, steak. It can go with pasta. Yes. It can go with hot dogs. It can go with pretty much everything you would drink with a red wine. A red blend will go there. Exactly. Right? And it, 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 and I think that the most interesting thing about red blends is the beginning of the red blend was also the beginning of the change in behavior amongst American consumers where a lot of people were choosing wine at the end of the day in the way they used to have a cocktail or beer, meaning sans food. And I think that is where the red blend also comes in, where, as you said, it goes with everything. But if you chose to pop on Netflix and like, absolutely. And pop a bottle of Apothic, it would be fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pairs of Bridgerton. Exactly. (laughs) I knew you're, you know what? It's funny. I knew you were going to say that. Um, It's the most watched ever. Yeah. But yeah, pairs of Bridgerton, right? So it's like that—that that is really what has been so interesting about the red blend. And this year, you saw in just sheer data the the interest, especially in the pandemic, of it just skyrocket. I mean, still behind. You know, you're not you're not going to knock King Cab off the throne, right? But but just behind it, right? Like it's well, I, yeah. I read that Cabernet Sauvignon is by far number one. But the second category of what for wine, right? 
not just a grape, but as a wine. The second category is red blend. And, and I, I think up until 2014 or something like that, the word, the term red blend was was lumped into sweet the sweet wine category. Yep. And like the Nielsen data wasn't even looking at red blend, but since it has, it's increased over like a three year period, it just keeps on increasing, increasing and increasing in popularity. And it just can't be ignored now. And I think it's so great that we have this. And it's weird. I know that like people would try to copy um, Big Oak to to please like the, the Parker thing back in the day. But it's very interesting how now other new world regions are sort of, we've spent a lot of time in America from the beginning since in, until now is trying to emulate what happened in Europe. That's a lot of what happened back in the day. And then we slowly but surely figure out our own style. In the 90s, it was like these big, oaky red wines. And we kind of backed away from that, but we still have that structure like, you know, in our lives. And it's very interesting how now it seems like places like Argentina are looking to what this red wine, red blend is. And now they're trying to say, okay, we know what Americans like. They like this smooth, rich red blend. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to now create something that's similar to that. And I think that's a, it's a major success. I mean, uh, Santa Julia, has a Malbec Cab Franc blend. It's called Mountain Blend. It's their red blend. It's awesome. It's like twelve bucks. Yeah, that's another thing. A lot. I know the prisoner's expensive, but a lot. Isn't it true? Most of these red blends are pretty affordable. Yes, they're pretty affordable. They're you know they're usually you know ten to twenty dollars. I mean, but that's the thing is that I I think what what people are showing is okay. You have some of those, but then you do have these much higher priced ones that yeah. are you know more premium and are what you would see it's it's now okay so i guess what i'm trying to say is it's a flavor profile now that people have gotten used to and like both at you know a more everyday bottle as well mm-hmm. as you know one of these bottles that when they go to the steakhouse they would order right and right. and they and they will and they will like and i think a lot of the things with red blends that people also appreciate is they uh you know they're pretty much pop and pour at, at whatever price yes. range, right? Like yes. they're, they're wines that are like, they're, they're good to go. The second the cork is popped, you know, right. you're not, you're not as worried about, you know, the things that might come along with Cabernet and, you know, right. what was the vintage and what was, you know, that that's, it's very different in a lot of ways with the red blends um, right. because they can blend so many different things in to sort of achieve the profile they're looking for in any given year. Again, no rules. Right, and it's not aging into some sort of complexity and tertiary aromas. What it's doing is enduring. So exactly. The prisoner is a few years old or t- ten years old. It may not have changed into like a a very kind of brickish, beautiful. I mean, not you know, wine, but what it is instead is like this wine holds. You can have this wine in ten years. It may not be complex, but it's going to be a little bit more solid. That's it. It kind of feels like this is just a good solid wine. But then again, these wines aren't aging. These no. are wines to drink now. That's that's why I have that sort of like that sort of everyday feel. We finally, as Americans, have everyday red wine to drink. That's actually really good and smooth and easy, and we can say smooth. I think the wine industry needs to get used to that word, the science of smooth. We got to get into it. <laughs> yeah, man. So that's uh, that's red blends. Wow, man. Thank you so much for coming. I guess you know, I guess it's cool that you came to my podcast because I got some info. So thanks a lot. Yeah, man. I appreciate uh, you know somehow winding up here yeah i don't know how you how you got here I know. all right that's you're welcome
So there it is. I think we have in America, finally, for the first time in our history, a category that defines our everyday, easy drinking style. It took a while, but here we are. So red blends, they're fun, they're expensive, they're not expensive, but they're always plush, soft, smooth, and ready to drink. And that's an awesome American innovation. You're welcome. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Apothic Wine. From rich red blends to an alluring white and a rosé with dark secrets. Apothic makes wine that is anything but ordinary. Ignite your curiosity with Apothic Red, the intriguing red blend that launched the Apothic legacy. And yeah, there's a sly, roguish wink to every one of our bottles, because we think a good wine, like a good time, should mix things up a little bit. I mean, bold nights call for rebellious wine. Apothic wine, there's mischief in the making.